Well, good morning. Good to, good to see you. Good to have you with us this morning. Before, before Easter and Lent, we were working our way through uh, the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians in a series that I called um, Life in These Clay Pots. And it's always challenging. We were, we were building momentum and then we paused for about seven weeks. And a good pause, a pause that I'm always glad to make for uh, for, for Lent and Easter, but we want to jump back in, and we're going to go back and, and kind of re-engage uh, the letter and re-engage what Paul is doing in that letter, but I want to review a little bit. I want to kind of jump back into the story and see if I can't reconnect us, and so I'm going to take a, just, a, just a brief, brief moment to do that this morning. In the first section of this series, which covered the first five chapters of, of, of 2 Corinthians, we kind of gave this broad, broad label to it, gritty but glorious. And uh, the way I would summarize that is that the power and the beauty of authentic community, the way we do life together, is not found when we choose to hide our struggles, but in the hope and courage we find when we follow Jesus in transparent and truthful ways. Um, gritty, but glorious. You know, there's just a beauty to that. There's a power to living transparently with the, the grittiness and the realities of our lives. The second major section uh, was chapters six through eight. And this broadly was dealing with a question. And the question was this, what causes our lives to be trustworthy? It's a great question. Um, it's a needed question in this cultural moment of ours. You know, we live in a time where cynicism and lack of trust is rampant. And it's pointed in every direction, every institution, be it education and government and corporations and churches. So what is it that causes, as, as followers of Jesus, our lives to take on this quality of being trustworthy? And we, we learned three big ideas in those weeks. The first one was this. Our lives are trustworthy when we live well with God in the present. We're not living in the past. Uh, we're not living towards the future, but instead we're, we're engaged in a thoughtful spiritual journey in the present moment that is steadfast and resilient and faithful in every imaginable, imaginable life situation in which we find ourselves. So whatever is going on in your life today, you're living well with God. People trust that. They see that. They're paying attention to that. The second thing we talked about is the fact that our lives are trustworthy when we display distinctive integrity. You know, what do people see in our lives that stand out, that they notice? And, and we talked about a distinctive integrity. Uh, we, we allow nothing to weaken our love for Christ and nothing to compromise our loyalty to Christ. There's something uniquely distinctive about who we are as, as followers of Jesus that stands out in a winsome way. Uh, a distinctive integrity. The third thing we talked about was the fact that our lives are trustworthy when our relationships are marked by courageous honesty and humility. Honesty 
when we, we, we figure out and we, we are committed to holding one another accountable to following Jesus with integrity. Um, the humility is found when we're willing to work through the tensions that arise when we're honest with one another. Um, and, 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 and things are named and things are spoken and we're bumping into the realities of where our lives need to change in conversations and conflict. Tensions arise there. Humility is found when we are able to step into that space. And because we share a, a common desire to become like Jesus and love one another and, and this whole component of courageous honesty and humility I would venture to say is probably the missing component in the practice of community today. Very little of this goes on. We've privatized and we've isolated and we've insulated and there's very little uh, relational honesty and humility that takes place in our community. And yet when people bump into that, and when it's uh, not edgy and not judgy, but when it's just winsome and healthy and wholesome, there's something people trust about it. It's a good thing. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to examine the fourth quality. And let me give you the fourth quality, and then we'll begin unpacking it. Our lives are trustworthy when we display extravagant generosity. And, and we're going to spend about five weeks talking about this because it's that important. Um, and we're going to unpack it in little pieces. And this morning we'll do something, these next three or four weeks, we'll do something kind of different in the way we talk about things. But I want to begin with a couple of stories. Uh, Ron Yamamoto uh, was an orthopedic surgeon that Vern and I came to know during the years that we lived in Texas. Uh, I think I've referred to Ron at times in the past. Ron was one of those guys that marked my life in a very definitive, long-lasting way. Um, and we met Ron in the church we attended. Uh, Ron's generosity was compelling. Um, when, you, when you were around Ron, on, on one, of the, one of the Ron stories, and there were just dozens and dozens of Ron stories, on one occasion he was driving with the missionary and and Ron learned that this gentleman needed a car, and when they arrived in Ron's home, Ron handed him the keys and says, this is yours now. See, generosity for Ron was that simple. It was that natural. It didn't get complicated. If Ron had what he felt like you needed, the spirit prompted, he just gave it to you. And it was a, just a wild generosity about Ron, and always giving away stuff to people who needed it. And it was humorous to speak to his wife, Joyce, who was always curious to learn what Ron had given away that week. Uh, refrigerators, all kinds of things. And Vern and I were on the receiving end of Ron's generosity when he paid for a large, port of our graduates, a large portion of our graduate school and uh, allowed us to live in a, in a house he owned for, for modest rent. But here's what I tell you the story about Ron. Because I'm going to do two stories. I'm going to give you a contrast. You know, if you didn't know Ron, it would be easy to conclude that Ron's generosity was because he was a successful orthopedic surgeon. Uh, generosity, one might think, was easier for him. I mean, after all, he could afford to be generous. And here was the unspoken message in stories like Ron's. Generosity 
is a product of abundance. And if I had more, I too would be more generous. We're going to kind of unpack that in the weeks to come. Let me tell you another story. Um, I was in the West African country of Cameroon. Uh, they're doing some training with an organization I, I, I worked with back in, a, in the day. And when we were leaving, uh, Ben Victor, he was the gentleman who had hosted the training event. He invited us into his home for lunch. And we wound our way up uh, into a mountainside community where, where the poverty took our breath away. Um, the roads, you know, they were nothing but ruts that were heavily traveled in. Um, our van bottomed out as we worked our way through the village that was overcrowded with cardboard and tin shacks. And finally, when the ruts became too deep, we left our van and began a steep uphill climb uh, and an uphill walk to his home. And when we arrived, his entire extended family, his wife, his parents, his three children, his wife's two sisters, their children were waiting to greet us. Um, this extended family lived together in a 10 by 10 room. This was their home. Um, and it served as kitchen and living room and bedrooms and the family had to sleep in shifts in the course of the day. And as we entered uh, in, into the home, four large um, paint buckets had been turned upside down and they were covered with, with a white cloth that they only pulled out with special guests and, and we were escorted and seated as honored guests. Um, um, one corner of the room served as the cooking area and Ben Victor's wife, Juliet, had, had taken special care just to decorate her home for us. Um, you could see that she was proud to serve us in her home. A little sense of sadness or shame. Uh, there was just a delight about her. And when we drove away, there was a deep sense that we had been honored with a sacrificial generosity. Um, and here there was another unspoken message. Uh, the, the unspoken message with Ron's life was that generosity is always a matter of abundance. Uh, the unspoken message here is that generosity, sometimes extravagant, extravagant generosity, is not the product of large resources but of large hearts. And you see these contrasts and, and the tensions that they, they sometimes create. Well, we're going to jump into a passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 8. It's going to be on the screen, and I'm going to begin with five verses this morning, and we're going to kind of begin setting up this conversation that's going to take place through May. Let me read the verses. So now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So a little bit of background. So the church in Jerusalem, um, at the time that, that Paul wrote this, uh, they faced um, pretty severe food shortages and overcrowded conditions in the city uh, during a severe famine that struck in AD 46. 
and it paralyzed that part of the world. And on top of that, there were crippling taxes, uh, both from their Jewish leaders and from the Roman government itself. And so you think of a, just a burdensome city, state, federal tax. They were, they were just crippled. It was crippling uh, all the people who lived in Jerusalem. Well, a story emerged about a group of Christians, not in Jerusalem, who stepped up to help the Christians in Jerusalem in an astonishing way. Um, Paul had planted churches in the Macedonian area, which was Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, a modern-day Greece. And you go back and you look at the story of these three churches. Uh, they were born in the midst of incredible opposition to Christ. This was not an easy start. Um, incredible opposition. So those who, who followed Christ among these Macedonian Christians, those who followed Christ paid a high price for their faith. Uh, many of them lost their families. They lost their careers, their income. Uh, following Christ was, was not just this simple thing. It, it was a very sacrificial thing. Um, persecution was a very real and very regular part of their lives. But here's what's important to their story. The Macedonian Christians were rock bottom poor. Now, Paul described their poverty uh, here in this passage as extreme. Uh, the, the Greek literally means it was down to the depth. Uh, today, we might describe them as dirt poor. Uh, poverty you could feel to the bones and and. You know, and then stories began to, to swirl around these, these, these Christians. And, and I suspect that had Paul heard that this group of people, this very poor, persecuted group of Christians, that this group of people really wanted to help the suffering, those suffering in Jerusalem, but they just couldn't. They had too little to give. Um, I think Paul would have understood in, in fact, everybody would. They were doing well just to survive. And yet, even their extreme poverty and persecution didn't hinder their generosity. Uh, verse two, uh, I think it's gonna be up on the screen for you. In the midst of, the, of a very severe trial, and notice these, this, this next combination of words, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that a great phrase? Um, their joy and their poverty welled up together. Um, that is not a combination we might expect, right? And yet it was that mixture of, of joy and, and poverty that welled up in a rich generosity. He goes on in verse three, for I testify, they gave as much as they were able. In fact, they gave beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded, they begged with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. You get the sense that Paul tried to talk him out of it. He said, no, 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 we, we, we want to do this. You know, some might have concluded that such generosity simply wasn't responsible or wise. 
I mean, giving sacrificially when they had so many needs just didn't make sense. Take care of your family. What do you need to do right now? You know, to be, everyone would have understood, but, but this wasn't a lack of judgment on their part. Um, it was a reflection of their hearts. And so there was no need for pressure or reminders. There was no hint of guilt or obligation. Uh, they begged for the privilege of serving the Lord by sharing in the effort to financially support other Christians who were struggling. <laughs> Extravagant generosity. You know, we've all heard stories of people whose surprising generosity stands out like this story. And you may have known people, personal friends, and, and been fortunate enough to have known people who model generosity as a way of life. It's, it's, it's winsome, and it becomes more winsome when it's unexpected. And we're surprised by it. When, when, when someone that we never expected to be generous is generous in an extravagant way, it, it, it kind of stops us in our tracks, it gives us pause, and, and, it, and, and it begins to shift something in us. And, and what inspires such generosity? Paul, verse five. While they exceeded our expectations, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. You see, what, what compelled their generosity was their devotion to Jesus. See, faith was their way of life. And, and so generosity wasn't this thing they set aside and made a priority to do. Generosity flowed naturally from, from who they were. It was that simple. You see, when we love and follow Jesus, every area of our lives is devoted to Jesus' leadership. Nothing hands off. There's no non-Jesus areas in our lives. And Jesus is not something we add to all the other stuff in our lives to make our lives more rich and more rewarding. See, our lives are richer and rewarding when we give them fully to Jesus. And we've got to get that sequence correct. And as we mentioned last Sunday, um, our lives are restoried by Jesus. And, and when, when restoried by Jesus, generosity is our way of life. with our time and with our money and our stuff, and we'll talk a lot about that in the weeks to come, that, that generosity isn't just about money. It's a way of life, and it's, it's an outlook. It's, it's a perspective that we bring to, to how we conduct ourselves, and, and generosity becomes the natural expression of our story with Jesus. As followers of Jesus, it's simply who we are. In chapter, and a little bit later in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul wrote this. And this is why we get it. And we're following Jesus. Look, look what Jesus did for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave everything. That's grace. 
So that's where our journey towards generosity must begin this morning. Let me make a couple of statements before we transition to something to kind of drill, drill down on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say things with some stark clarity that we can always find exceptions to, but I, I wanna illustrate something. We don't give ourselves to generosity, we give ourselves to Jesus. See, there's a difference there. We give ourselves to Jesus. And generosity is not a strategy for bringing kindness and mercy to the world. It does that, but it's fundamentally not a giving strategy. Generosity is the way we display Jesus' kindness and mercy to the world. Um, Generosity is not about living in a way that people look at us and say, oh man, they're generous. Generosity is living in a way that invites people to discover how generous God is. And, and these distinctions are nuanced but, but critical to our understanding of generosity. Um, generosity is not about a large bank account or an abundance of resources. Generosity is about a large heart and an abundance of joy. And that begins to set the tone that when we devote ourselves to Jesus, generosity follows. And it follows very naturally. And it's the way we do life. I want to introduce someone to you. We're going to do something fun this morning, something creative to help. John, come on up. And uh, if you haven't, if you haven't met John and, and Cassandra uh, Cernelli, they've been a part of our church family for some time. And and John, come on up, come and have a seat. John. John serves on the team at Operation Mobilization, the missions organization here, and he works with their donors. And as I've gotten to know John, one of his passions is generosity and fostering generosity. Hey. It's kind of, you've kind of devoted your life to that. I have. Hey, you pronounced my last name correctly. Ah, I'm, I'm impressed with I that, I practiced Gary. it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me with oh, you. Oh, no, I've been delighted. So John is going to be with us um, these next number of Sundays. Good morning, church. <laughs> and uh, John is going to introduce us to what we're going to do this morning because we want to we really want to take this whole thought about generosity and begin moving it out of our head mm-hmm. into our way of life. And so we're going to do some, some fun things these next couple of weeks. And John, why don't you set it up? Sure. What we're going to do. So. Sure. Well, first of all, um, you, know, you know this, Gary. My wife and I are pretty new here. Right. Uh, we've been in the Grace family about a year now. Cassandra and I have been together 37 years, and uh, it's been quite a journey. And a lot of what we're going to talk about, actually, she has shaped in me, actually dating back to her childhood at a church in Syracuse, New York. So uh, important to understand the context a little bit. Yes. And I, and I do understand how, you know, Verna has been pastoring me for 45 years. So I, I, get I didn't that. say that, that, pastoring. That, that, no, you said, said pastoring. I, no, I said pastoring. Oh, pastoring. I said pastoring. <laughs> I said pastoring. Sorry, Verna. Let's get that correct. Sorry, Verna. Very correct. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't practice that, by the way. No, that was, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to talk over the next several weeks about uh, about what generosity looks like in different parts of the world and in different contexts. Yeah. And in fact, this morning, after, uh, after a film we're going to watch, we'll talk about sort of the American influence on our interpretation of money and generosity. So what's going to happen is, 
In a few minutes, we'll see a film. It's about seven minutes long. It's going to take you t entirely out of the context you live in, in the world that you live in, which, which Gary and I decided to do intentionally. So that'll be today. After that film, you'll, we'll break you out into small groups, and you'll have a brief conversation about what you've observed and learned from that film. Uh, and then Gary and I will talk about, about that a little bit afterwards. And then we'll do the same thing a few more weeks. And then in each of the films that we've chosen, you'll be in different places of the world. You'll be in a prison here in the U.S., not today, but uh, in an upcoming Sunday. And, and then you'll be in the middle of poverty in Uganda. So that's the, that's the series we've got designed, Gary. Good. Good. So. Let's, let's take a look at the video. You want, you want, you want to set the video up anywhere or does it stand, stand on its own? I think it stands on its own. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Good. Obviously, when we watch a, a video like that and we see something in a context, in this case, North India, one of the questions is, how do we bridge? What, what do we draw from something like that? And, and what, what, are we, what do we gain for our context? here in Peachtree City, South Atlanta, Fayetteville, in, in our lives. So could you talk a little bit, John, about how we, how we draw from this story hmm. truths or practices, principles, just that you think would be helpful for us today? Yeah, Gary, I think there are three things for us to unpack as, as we process this film. I've seen this a half a dozen times, and I'm, I'm still learning the truths that come from it. The first is I think we've got to think about um, our context, which isn't immediately obvious is you watch that film from North India, but I want to talk about that in a second, and I want to unpack that here in Peachtree City and Fayette County and the United States. Secondly, I want to talk about our relationship with money, which I know sounds like a weird thing because it's an inanimate object, but there's, we're just layered with these influences across our lives and even ever-present in, in society today that shape our thinking about money. And I think some of it's healthy, some of it's not. And then thirdly, there are principles uh, and practices that I think are clear in the film that we can all learn from. Yeah. So money and the context of it here in the U.S., I think that's sort of the first place to start. I grew up in the New York City area. Uh, I always sort of shudder to tell people that. Uh, I love New York, but not everybody does. Uh, and, and so in some parts of the world, no matter where you grew up, especially here in the U.S., where you grew up has influenced your attitude about money, your context, your perspectives about it. My dad fought in the Second World War. He grew up during the Depression. That deeply influenced my belief system about money. Um, and New Yorkers, you know, they, they sort of grow up in the center of capitalism, at least for the U.S. And again, that sort of shapes our thinking about money. So my question for you to ponder this week and process this week and pray over is, what shaped you um, to the place where you are today, what influences in your life, in your childhood, uh, and as a young adult influenced your thinking about money today, but maybe you want to rethink a little bit. Uh, I, um, and then there's this question of sort of your relationship with money. So on the table here is money. There's $3,300 on, on the table here. And as I tell you that, maybe you've got some thoughts about that, about that money <laughs> sitting there. Now, for some people, this represents a month's income, about $39,000 over 12 months. For some people, 
this is the tip at the end of a vacation week. And so, um, again, as, as I sort of throw this out at you and ask you, what thoughts and emotions do you have as, as you come in proximity to money? And, and that's something for us to be unpacking and to be, and to be thinking about. Do you, do you see it as evil? Uh, are you somehow paralyzed by it? Are you compelled toward it? Uh, because it's something you, you're, you're constantly acquiring more of. And I would say in the U.S., as we think about sort of policy in this country and systems in this country, uh, as we think about health care and we think about long-term planning for retirement, those are realities of our context. So with those kind of big rocks, what do you think was being modeled for us in, in the story today um, that you, you find to be... Uh, most of us, uh, I, I love the compelling thought that if you have a meal every day, you have something to give. I mean, that was kind of the mic drop for me. You know, I heard that statement. Most of us are not worrying about our next meal. You know, so, so, so draw, draw us in and say, what, what is it that you think kind of is the, the sweet spot of, of their story that is really poignant for us today? Yeah. I agree with you that most of us are not worried about our next meal. I I do have empathy and relate to those of us who are thinking about college and who are thinking about retirement. Uh, We have an only child and we don't want to be a burden to our child at the, you know, towards the end of our lives. And and that, I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, So so the anxieties are just different anxieties. The pressures, the things we feel that are, that are very real to us are, that's right. In some ways, just as real. I, I think so. I, I think we have to acknowledge those realities, not brush them off. Um, I pick up a couple of things in the film, but I think for each of us, there are multiple truths to be discovered in the film. Um, uh, I grew up in a home where discipline was, was really strongly encouraged. Um, discipline, like my mother would chase me around the house with a, with a wooden spoon. If discipline was necessary, that was an Italian New York thing, I think. Um, but, but more importantly, and more to the point of the film, discipline of the routine practice, there was this routine of, of scooping up uh, a cup of rice and setting it aside to be given away as part of a daily practice. I think there's something about that. And I don't know how much we have, uh, we continue to embrace discipline in culture and society. I think that's really, really helpful. The other thing that you may or may not have picked up on that I just love, and actually is one reason why I love the work I do full time uh, with a team across the U.S. who get to journey with people um, in their giving is the joy. I mean, it's, I hope you picked up on that. This is not a burden. This is not an obligation. Um, and, and we got that out of the scripture this morning, of course, also, as you read it. Overwhelming sense of joy. And I, uh, I want more of that. And I think we all want more joy in our lives. I think somehow we've been tricked into believing that joy comes by holding and keeping yeah. money and wealth. When, in fact, God tells us just the opposite. You know, there's an interesting thing about Scripture that I continue to unpack. Of course, God is the ultimate model of generosity. And we know about John 3.16 that he gave. There's over 1,200 books, uh, 1,200 chapters in the Bible. In the very first chapter of Genesis, what does God do? What does he model? He gives. 
He gives the, the fruit-bearing trees and the plants of the field so we can eat. Um, so we, we follow a God who is abundantly and extravagantly generous. I think that's what I get from the film. Good, good. Well, thanks, John. And, and we're going to be just kind of probing a whole variety of things. But we want to help you with something because our goal over these next five weeks is to invite you into a conversation and some discipleship. You should have picked up something when you walked in the room today. Um, if you didn't, you can either hold your hand up and they'll get it to you, or you can pick it up when you leave. But what we're providing you is there's a link to the video. And so if you'd like to rewatch the video, you can cut and paste the link. You can rewatch it. And then there's a series of questions here that you as a family can talk about around the table. Uh, your small groups can talk about. You can engage in conversation. And, and so what we would love to see taking place over the next four or five weeks is that Sunday morning is just launching something. It's launching a conversation for you, your family, your small groups um, to carry on uh, more conversation about what is the next step that you as a family, what's it look like for you as a family to begin embracing this way of life in your unique ways? And then each week we'll kind of begin building on it. And we'll build more on it each week as we, as we move in into the weeks to come. So would you, would you pray for us? Would you have a sure. word of prayer? And then we'll transition to our, our, our closing worship and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get them out of here. So. Sure. Lord, thanks for this time we've had here this morning in this sacred place um, to hear more from you and to learn more about who you are, your character, your heart. Uh, you have modeled and, and demonstrated timeless truths of generosity from the very beginning of your word uh, through to what we heard today about the Macedonian church. So Lord, would you begin to plant or maybe rebirth in us uh, and grow and strengthen this joy for generosity? You yourself demonstrated joy uh, from the very beginning of time. Uh, this love that you have to be generous to us, you give to us generously of your grace uh, time and time again when we, when we continually fail to earn it, Lord. So thank you for your overwhelming generosity to us. Would you give to us truths uh, that will be new to us and revealed to us in these weeks to come? And would you bring to us again that joy of giving that you've promised to us? We give you thanks for all that you give to us and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.